Hello, welcome to the latest podcast from the University of Brighton. In this week's episode, Edwin Gilson has been to Falmer to speak to Richard Jacobs, Honorary Fellow in Literature here at the University. With over 40 years of teaching behind him, the English Association recently invited Richard to write about why literature is such an important subject to study. You can read that in the links in the podcast description. He also delivers open lectures which students on all of our literature courses can attend and Edwin went to meet him. You were a principal lecturer of the university's literature department um, up until a few years ago and you have a slightly different role now. Could you please explain that? Yeah, I've got an honorary fellow. Um, sometimes they call me an honorary teaching fellow <laughs> um, or honorary tutorial fellow. Uh, it's a title that um, the head of school very kindly gave me, um, I think partly because um, of my long history in leading the literature subject here for some years, uh, and also because um, I'd very fortunately been given quite a few teaching excellence awards, and I think it was in recognition of those two things. And basically what I, um, how I interpret the role is um, I come in and I give open lectures that are available to any undergraduates on any of the courses, kind of loosely tied to their own particular modules. And um, I help students uh, and colleagues wherever I can with with advice and and help. So it's it's a kind of way of still being in the university system without being a kind of formal member of the teaching team. Sure, and you're, you're held in very high regard here among students, I know. Um, Thank you. And you played a major role in forming the course, a literature yes. course in the first place. Can you explain what were your kind of guiding principles when you set about doing that? Yes, I think um, <clears throat> what I was really keen to emphasise from the start, partly as a way of distinguishing us from potential rival universities, was I was very keen, partly because of my background in sixth form teaching, I was keen to em- emphasise a student-focused approach, but above all else, we must teach to the students' strengths and weaknesses, being very conscious of the kind of backgrounds they've come from, building on the kinds of experiences with literature that they've had, uh, emphasising the continuities between their work at A-level uh, and their work here, whereas some more old-fashioned universities make a point of emphasising the discontinuity so that students are told as soon as they walk in the room, right, you can forget everything you've learned, you've learned earlier, this is what literature really is. And that's not, not the way I, I think, and that's why I was very keen to emphasise um, from the start that literature, that literature here had an open door, that students can come and talk to us whenever they want, and uh, our teaching would be very much structured around our awareness of their experiences and their histories. How do you manage to achieve that kind of more individualised approach almost to teaching them when every person is treated on the basis of their own background? Like yes, it, 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 it is difficult, but I think it's just a question of um, addressing students as much as you possibly can as, indiv- as individuals. Um, again, I think it's possibly, this is why I was brought up to teach <clears throat> coming from um, First of all, a, sec- a secondary school teaching ex- experience and then sixth form colleges, uh, which is where I worked for many years before I came here. I think the emphasis was, is always on getting to know the students individually and um, making sure that the teaching is as tailored as much as it can be to 
those kind of needs that they all have that are very different. It, 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 it is a, diff a different kind of teaching. Um, it's not so focused on research-led teaching, though of course we all do research-led teaching. But I was very pleased to be talking to a colleague in a, another university who uh, contributed a, a chapter in a book I um, edited recently who, who talked about teaching-led research. Um, and I think that's a very good emphasis, the idea that perhaps our best research comes out of our teaching. And our best research comes out of our teaching because we've had the experience of addressing the particular needs of the students we're working with. And on the current, current climate for literature, I was going to ask about what you thought about the idea that literature should have some kind of function in, in wider society as well as reflecting it. Or can yes. it exist as kind of great art in its own in its own right? You know, should it be obliged to have a function in, in that kind of slightly hard scientific word? I suppose it's a difficult word, isn't it? Yeah. I suppose I would say that the function of literature is to generate the kind of analytic discussions that we're thinking about. Um, that the function of literature is to understand the world better and to understand ourselves better. I think literature is uh, a particularly privileged place where we can safely discuss and ask questions about, about ourselves and about the world we live in and how both ourselves and the world could be different. And you think this is a particularly pertinent time to be doing that? I think it's a particularly, with... urgent, <laughs> yeah. particularly urgent time to be doing this, to be doing this now. Um, I think we owe it to our school children um, to gain the skills of questioning the world in a more kind of in interrogative and, and more sceptical way. Um, and I think the reading of literature and talking about literature is, is a particularly fruitful way of um, doing that. So I, I, do, I think literature, in a sense, is not a kind of marginal bolt-on to a secondary curriculum, but uh, like other humanities subjects, I'd say that literature was, you know, properly understood is at the heart of any good secondary curriculum. Sure, and you said a minute ago that um, one of the functions of literature is to help us understand ourselves better. Yes. I wonder what, if you can bring your mind back to your kind of formative years, were there any texts that stood out for you that helped you understand yourself better in those angsty teenage years? Yes, or? very, very, very much so. I'm sure this has happened with, um, with um, all of us. I mean, I've been lucky enough to be able to think back and reflect uh, on those sorts of experience because of a book of lectures that I'm putting together at the moment, uh, a book that is quite open about the kind of strong personal effects that literature can have when, um, when we're young. Um, I mean, I can remember having extremely strong and often quite difficult and often quite painful relationships with uh, texts. Um, um, a text like Emma, Jane Austen's Emma, there's a, there's a scene in which Emma behaves appallingly to a impoverished neighbour and, and when she is upbraided on this by her friend who she trusts, it, it just suddenly kind of cuts into her like a kind of wound, that something that she has done that she just never occurred to her that she was being as appalling as she was. And it's a completely life-changing moment for her and it was for me uh, at the same time or texts like Hamlet um, I mean we all have strong personal relations with um, 
Hamlet, but um, that, that had a, a profound and very difficult uh, effect upon me. I mean, I particularly recall being very puzzled by how different Hamlet is in Act 5 compared to the way he's in Acts 1 to 4. It's, I really was concerned about, about this. I, I could see that he was different, but I couldn't kind of explain it. But then we, the school took us to see a production at Stratford, and something in that just made it, made it clear. And on, on, on the way home, in the coach on the way home, I remember my mind fever kind of running a kind of story about what's happened to change in between Acts 4 and Act, Act 5. And I, it really meant a huge uh, amount to me. One other example that I've actually written about before is um, The Impact of Waiting for Godot, um, the play by Samuel Beckett. I, just one day as a 15-year-old, 16 perhaps, I was at a boys' boarding school and um, just bored one afternoon. I was sitting in the study of an older boy and um, I just glanced at his bookshelf and there was a really strange mud-coloured paperback. Uh, I just pulled it out and began to read. And within half an hour, I was certain, I was certain of a number of things that would never have occurred to me before. The whole world felt a different place. I felt very different as a person. I knew that I had to act a particular part in that play and direct it. And I've never acted or directed it before. The whole, the whole world felt, felt new. That's a text that has had a huge effect on lots of people. There's the famous story of when it was first, um, one of the early productions of Waiting for Godot was in a jail in the States. It spoke to them in an absolutely direct, simple way in which it didn't to more academic kind of audiences. Completely transformed them. And there's one particular guy called Rick Klukey who since then and since coming out of jail has devoted his life to performing Beckett's plays. Wow. When you said about um, yourself almost being a more active participant in the text, do you think that's maybe a common misconception about literature that you are a passive very consumer so. of it? And you, very much yeah. so, yes. Yes, I think that's something that um, I used to try and emphasise with first-year undergraduates, that, um, that reading is a very active process and the production of meaning is something that um, is, is going on between the reader and the text. It's very much the reader playing a very a very kind of active role. It's partly what I meant earlier about that creative, productive triangle between the teacher, the reader, so the teacher, the student, and the text. So that activity of, of making the process of meaning is something that is circling, circling around that kind of thing. Um, and you could argue that earlier on in schooling, in the curriculum at GCSE and before, there's a kind of model in which, as you say, the student is encouraged to be more passive and to just receive meaning from the teacher as a kind of, you know, here is the meaning of this text. Mm. Um, whereas at A-level and beyond, uh, we're trying to encourage a, a kind of active transactionary process in which meaning is a transactionary activity. Sure. And going back, you received first-class honours from University of Oxford. Was there a certain teacher there, or even before that, that inspired you and led you to on this kind of path that you're oh, on now? Oh, very much at secondary school, yes. At that, at that boarding school that um, I just referred to, uh, there was a very charismatic teacher uh, who um, taught me, more or less by chance, actually, every single term I was in the school, I happened to be in 
the class that he was um, teaching. Um, and uh, he was also the man I confided my desire to direct and act in Waiting for God and he sort of, or, sort of organized it and things. And I can remember as a 17 year old, you know, when he was teaching me Ham, teaching me Emma, but I found it very obvious to say to myself, I want to do what he's doing. I want to have the effect on the students that he's having on me. And now you seem to be having, or you have had that effect on, on our students. You Thank got you. voted the, uh, was it the most inspirational teacher? Yes, that, the was SU. The, that was very kind of you. Yes, that was one of the teaching uh, awards, um, most inspirational teacher. I think they, they had two that particular year. Um, but yes, that was a, that was a very warming, I mean, all the teaching um, awards that I uh, won were, I, I think, I think I remember saying at the, at the time, but um, it's not so much about being a good teacher because you can't, ha can't, can't have a good teacher without good students because it is an active, mutual, transactionary thing, as I said. So good teaching is synonymous with good reading, which is synonymous with having active students in that process. Sure. And you mentioned earlier about the book that's upcoming, yes. which is a series of your lectures, isn't it? Yes. Is there a certain theme to that or is it more yes. of a... Yeah. Um, the working title we got at the moment is um, Literature in Our Lives, um, talking about texts from Shakespeare to Philip Pullman, so quite a long range. Um, and they... It will be 17 separate lectures, but there will be a number of um, common threads tying them up so people can make connections. Because making connections between texts, I think, is again a very empowering thing for students to um, gain in critical literacy the sense that texts connect up. Um, and they don't just exist in a kind of vacuum, but they exist in the world and they exist in relation to each other. Uh, in one of my earlier books I talked about um, uh, I talked about literature um, texts being interventions in social processes that they're not just lying around being attractive art objects, they are actually intervening in politics, in society, in culture, in, in, in our lives. Um, so yeah I, I think um, you know I think that's the key thing to to hold on to, but uh, um, literature has that kind of active force. So the book of lectures will um, have a number of co connecting threads, uh, including um, something I'm particularly interested in, the, um, the story of the fall of man in Genesis and the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the garden and the impact of that myth on wider culture. But writers and filmmakers and um, they, even if unconsciously, and in fact often unconsciously, they are showing the influence of that amazingly powerful myth with all it has to say about sexual politics and loss. So there's a lot about sexual politics in the book about sexuality and gender, um, and there's a lot about loss, the loss of paradise, but the idea that loss is a perhaps a crucial element in our psychic lives. So there's a number of the lectures connect up like that as well. So, so I, I hope that the students who, who read the book and 
get the kind of experience of sitting in a live lecture, which is what um, the book is intending to kind of replicate the um, the experience of being in a kind of virtual in a kind of virtual lecture. Um, but they'll not only see the way books can play such an important part in one's lives, but the way books connect up with each other in a kind of endless and productive conversation. And was it, I'm right in saying, it was, a, it was a student or two students that actually suggested that you do the book? It was students place. and a couple of colleagues, actually. Okay. Um, one of the first open lectures I gave when I took on my new role, a um, couple of colleagues um, came to one and, and said, um, why don't you try and get that and other lectures like you've done over the years um, in print? Because it wouldn't be a typical introduction to literature book. It would be more like a way of modelling uh, the way literature uh, can intervene and affect us in, in profound ways. Are there any kind of, not downside, sounds a bit harsh, but you talk about how empowering literature can be in those um, interventions and perhaps revelations you might get from literature, but are there any kind of downsides to a life in literature in terms of this philosophical opening of your mind almost? Can that well, lead to some kind of tortured <laughs> reflection? Or I think it can. I think it can can lead uh, to extremely Hamlet-like uh, anxieties. Um, the other question you're, the question you're also, I think, touching on is, is something that Coleridge, the romantic poet, um, wrote in a marginal note in one of his notebooks. I'm going to get the quote wrong, but it was something like, literature may be good at um, giving us alternative kinds of experiences, but it can, ha it can harden us to real life. Now, I can, I've got this, if he's put his finger on the idea that arts in general, literature in particular, um, can give us a kind of, a kind of alternative kind of humanism, or an alternative kind of human take on things, which can paradoxically, according to Coleridge, can actually harden us to our day-to-day transactions with other human beings. Now, I think that's a very sceptical and very bleak way of looking at it, but it's a discussion worth having, um, and I would use as an example um, something that the uh, cultural critic George Steiner famously talked about when he said that the, um, the men who operated the death camps in the Holocaust, that the, the, the men who actually, on a day-to-day -day basis, operated those camp, those, those death camps, would go home in the evening and listen to Schubert or, or read Schiller. That is something that we just have to face. This idea that you can compartmentalise things in, in your life, you can shut off things. Now, it's a very difficult debate, but I'm, I'm glad you brought it up, and it's something that I encourage students to talk about whenever I teach a remarkable Holocaust poem called September Song by the contemporary poet Geoffrey Hill, who died quite recently. Um, and that is a poem that is about a Holocaust victim, a 12-year-old boy in the death camps. Uh, but it's a poem that is also asking some very, very guilty questions about whether art should even deal with these sort of subjects, whether art can pr presume to to intervene in that kind of debate. So it's a really live issue, so I'm very glad you brought it up. Wasn't it the Adorno quote as well? Quite. No, no poetry, poetry after Auschwitz? No poetry after Auschwitz. Yeah. That's exactly what George Steiner quotes. Um, right. quotes uh, 
at all, no saying, which, you know, again, has a kind of logical truth to it, but is, you know, is obviously not the case because there has been a lot of very good poetry after, mm. after Auschwitz, but it's still, the question is still worth asking. It's time for some quickfire questions now about your life outside of the university. Uh, starting with, what is your favourite place in Sussex? Uh, Brighton, I, uh, Br- Brighton, I guess. I don't live in Brighton, so I, I visit Brighton, um, you know, even from here, we're, we're talking in Farmer, but um, every time I visit Brighton, it's closer to being a tourist and someone who actually lives there, so uh, I, get a, I get a real vibe from it. Okay. Where do you live out of interest? I live in Eastbourne, ah, right. which is... Uh, Nothing likes so lively a place. <laughs> it's full of old people like me. <laughs> quite nice and tranquil in its own Yes, way. yes, yes it is. Quite. Um, and quite an apt one. What are you currently reading, watching or listening to? So you could answer one or all of those. Yes. Um, I am reading, or I'm rather rereading what is often referred to as the greatest of all novels, which is Proust, uh, In Search of Lost Time, which is a multi-volume Huge, huge work. Uh, I'm rereading it partly because there's a Proust lecture in the um, in the book that I'm planning, uh, and partly because one really has to, to reread Proust. I, I came to Proust quite quite late, uh, unlike some of my con- contemporaries at university who um, were great Proust fans. But I think I was just a coward or lazy and was so. Um, put off by the sheer size of it. So I came to Proust only a few few years ago, and that really is a, a life-changing uh, experience. So I'm looking forward to completing Proust for the second time. Is that a whole... Is it eight? It's books? seven. It's seven? six. It's in seven volumes, but it's normally packaged as six extremely fat paperbacks. It's about three and a half thousand pages. <laughs> and where are you at the moment? Um, I'm, I'm uh, for the second time, uh, actually the third time, I've, I've read Proust twice in two different translations, uh, and I'm reading the better of the two translations, the second one. I'm rereading that one, and I'm about a third of the way through. Okay. Yeah. Um, and describe your perfect weekend. You can treat this question any which way you want, really, I suppose. Um, I have a weakness for fine wine, uh, which my doctor is not too happy about, but... Um, so I guess a bit of uh, a bit of reading Proust, um, a bit of walking with my partner and dog, uh, a bit of uh, good wine and food. Um, that would be uh, and uh, listening to good music. Um, I'm a, quite a passionate classical music fan, and um, uh, I like to to listen to lots of Bach and uh, Monteverdi, those rather sort of earlier ones. So. That's my sort of taste there. Yes. So that will be a nice weekend. And an interesting one. If you could invite three people to dinner, past or present, who would it be? <coughs> well, Proust would be one. I think Beckett and I think Dr Johnson. So three literary people. I think what Beckett and Johnson had in common um, were they, they were so profoundly generous and unselfish. They, in their very different ways, they... Um, live their lives for others. I know that's not normally thought about Beckett, but he genuinely was like that, I, I, I think. And I think Proust, I'd, <coughs> I'd like to admit, because I think he must have been such an extremely <clears throat> extremely strange chap, it would be nice to... I appreciate that all three are men too, so if I can add, add a fourth. Yeah. I'd love to have met and known Emily Dickinson, um, 
the great 19th century American woman poet. Um, she was c considered m mad by those um, around her, uh, but um, her poetry breaks all the rules, uh, and she broke all the rules herself in being a middle-class woman who refused to do all that kind of typical things. Uh, but I think, again, she was a, a wonderful, wonderful person who I would have loved to have met. How would that dynamic work, you think, around the table? <laughs> who would lead, lead the conversation? You'd have to mediate, wouldn't yes, you? Yes, I, I, I think so. I think Bruce would probably try and um, talk the most. Um, Beckett would probably sit in silence. Uh, there was a famous story of um, a, a American um, fan of Beckett's who um, visited Paris. I'm not quite sure how he managed to do this, but um, he got in touch with Beckett and said, I've been a passionate fan of your work you know, all my life. I'd just loved to meet you, if that's at all possible. And to his surprise, Beckett said, yeah, okay, fine. So they arranged to meet in a um, hotel, because Beckett would, wouldn't meet people in his home, but he met, they met in a hotel. And this guy who um, was there to, to meet Beckett was so overcome by the experience of seeing Beckett that he was literally reduced to silence. And it sat, sat there in very Beckettian silence. <laughs> and you'd be, able to, yes, you'd be uh, able to muster some words to him? Uh, I think so, yes. Yes, I, yes, I would have hoped so. Um, wow. Yes, and I think at the, the end of it, I think Beckett just stood up and said, thank you, that was very, that was very interesting. <laughs> Our thanks to Richard for taking the time to speak to us. If you'd like to read his article, Why Study Literature, please do follow the links in this podcast description. And if you're not already, a reminder, you can like and subscribe and listen to previous podcasts via Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Next week, we'll be speaking to Dr. Gary Brickley, Senior Lecturer in Exercise Physiology, who'll be giving us marathon tips with the Brighton Marathon just around the corner and talking about his career in higher education and in elite sport. Thanks for listening.